And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. Welcome to the second episode of Sandy Creek Stirrings. I'm your host, Joshua Jimenez. I'm so glad that you chose to join me this morning. It is Thursday morning, and so you know what that means. It's time for the very first episode on Baptist history. We discussed in our last episode the different topics we'll be discussing on the different days that we release episodes, and Thursday mornings is dedicated to Baptist history. So excited for the journey that we're going to take, and I hope you are too. Let's go ahead and jump in this morning to our subject. Now, as an introduction, let me say what I said in the first episode. I'm not a Presbyterian. I'm not a Methodist. I'm not Catholic. I'm not Lutheran. I'm not Anglican. I'm not Episcopalian, Church of God, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, Reform, Nazarene, Seventh-day Adventist. You name it. I'm not even non-denominational. I am an independent Baptist. And there is a reason why. There's a reason that I am independent Baptist. And maybe you happen to run across this podcast and you're of another denomination, maybe the one I mentioned. Let me encourage you to do two things. Number one, let me encourage you to take the beliefs that your denomination has and find them in the Bible. Go back, look through the Bible for yourself. Look through and find those beliefs that your denomination has. Make sure they're there. Make sure they're accurate. Make sure they're biblical. Let me encourage you to do that. Now, let me add a little asterisk there and say this. There are a lot of denominational leaders who teach that you cannot understand the Word of God. You have to listen to them to be able to understand it. God wouldn't have written you a book unless He intended for you to be able to understand it and understand what He was trying to say to you. Let me encourage you. Go back and read through the entire Bible for yourself. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is go back and find true historical accounts about how your denomination started and what its history is. Frankly, I don't know about you, but let's just get on the same level real quick. I'm not really interested in being part of a denomination that killed other people for a large period of time. I don't know about you, that's just something I'm not interested in. It doesn't have the right foundation. It didn't have the right start. That's something that, frankly, a lot of denominations have in their history. Go through and study the true historical accounts of your denomination. I was teaching an apologetic series in the summer of 2017 in our church on Sunday nights. Apologetics is not apologizing. It's simply the defense of our faith or how to defend your faith. And we went through topically and discussed some things that how we could and how we should defend our faith. One of those questions, one of those topics we went over was answering the question, are Baptist Protestants? And as I sat down and I began to look at everything, I realized, you know what? I don't know a whole lot about Baptist history. And so after that lesson, I sat down and began doing a personal study of Baptist history. And I'll tell you what, it has become one of my most favorite subjects. In the summer of 2018, I taught through, a, uh, through the series on Baptist history. We taught through an entire series in the summer long. And then we're working on teaching it through a second time, and the people are soaking it up. I am too. I get so much out of it. There's a reason why I'm a Baptist. And as I studied out that history 
and I studied the Word of God, it only confirmed in my heart what God wanted me to believe and do. Now, if you're a Baptist and you're tuning in and you just want to learn more about your history, let me thank you for joining, and you're going to have a wonderful time. Let me encourage you to be faithful as we go through. Don't miss a lesson. Go back and make sure to listen to them all, and I think God will really open your eyes. The sad reality is is that most Christians, most average Christians sitting in churches across America have no idea of their history unless they went to four years of Bible college. And a large percentage of Christians sitting in the pew each Sunday haven't been to Bible college, and a lot of them never will. They need to know what our history is, and they need to understand the sacrifices that were made so that we could have our faith today. It's a phenomenal journey we're about to go on, so let's jump right in. We're going to start by answering the question, who started the church? Who was the church founded upon? Now, I'm going to take you to a verse in Scripture because I think it's very key to understanding who the church was founded upon, but this verse that we're going to go to isn't without much controversy in history. For years and years and years, people have debated who this verse was actually talking about. So let's read it. I'll give you the two schools of thought on this verse, and then I'll talk about what the only conclusion can be. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18 says, And I say also unto thee, Jesus is talking, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the two schools of thought regarding this verse is one group says that, well, look at it. It says that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. That means that Peter is the foundation of the church. That's the first school of thought. It wasn't the first in history, but it's the first one that I'm mentioning in the podcast. The second school of thought, which is the first one in history, because here's what you'll find. In history, the apostles never discussed and, um, and disputed and debated over this verse. They knew what the exact meaning was. But the second school of thought is that Jesus is the rock that the church is built upon. Jesus Christ is the rock that the church is built upon. Now, let me break it down for you real quick, because Jesus is making a statement that in the language he was speaking, the disciples would have very easily understood in the language that the churches were originally reading these statements in, they would have easily understood the wordplay that Jesus was using. When Jesus says the word Peter, he uses the Greek word petros. Petros. It simply means stone. Stone. Picture in your head a stone. All right? And when Jesus says the word rock, he uses a different word. He uses the word petra. Petra means rock. Behind this word Petra, it always has to do with this idea of a giant boulder or the face of a cliff. Now, there's a big difference between a stone and a giant boulder or a rock. There's a big difference there. And that is the obvious thing, is that Jesus is using a wordplay and saying, hey, you are Peter, you're a little stone, but upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are some who would say, well, wait a second, uh, Petros and Petra are simply the male and female form of the word rock. You have to understand, in other languages, there are male and female forms of words. And they say, well, that's just what it is. It's just male and female form. They both mean the same thing. And I would pose to them this question. 
Why then in the New Testament is the word Petros, the word that Jesus uses for Peter, why is it translated 156 times as Peter? And the only other time it's translated in John chapter, let's see, John chapter 1 and verse 42, the only other time, it's only 157 times in the New Testament, why is the only other time it's translated as stone, not rock, stone? There's a difference between a stone and a rock. Every single time you find Petra in the New Testament, that word that Jesus used for rock, you'll find it always translated as rock. There is a difference between a stone and a rock. Jesus, in reality, was pointing to himself. He pointed at Peter. He said, thou art Peter, you're a stone. But upon this rock, and he points the finger back at himself, I will build my church. You say, how do you know that? How can you be so sure? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's always the same. And in Scripture, you'll find that who is the rock? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is always the rock. Remember the children of Israel? They were traveling. They had just gotten out of Egypt, and they were traveling through Horeb, and they had no water. What happened? God told Moses, hey, I want you to go over here. There's a rock. And you're going to take your rod, and you are going to strike and smite the rock. So Moses went, he smote the rock, and out of the rock came water. What an incredible miracle. You know you don't get water out of rocks. It just doesn't work that way. And he smote the rock, and water came out enough to feed all their cattle, all the people. What an incredible miracle. But do you know who the rock was? You say, wait a second. There is a who to the rock? Yes, there is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 4 says, And it all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, that rock was following them along on their journeys. You remember later on, they ran out of water again, and God says, Yeah, last time you smote the rock, this time I want you to go speak to the rock. And Moses looks at it and says, Wow, that's a familiar looking rock. I think I've seen that rock before. I want you to speak to it this time. Don't smite it. Speak to it. Why? Because it was Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ would only have to be slain. He'd only have to be smitten one time for the sins of the world. That was the important analogy that God was making through the picture of this rock. In fact, Moses himself admits that Jesus Christ is the rock. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 through 4 says, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. Capital R, He is the rock. You'll notice, because I will publish the name of who? The name of the Lord. And then Moses refers to the Lord as the rock. There in that passage, you'll see that every, all, the, all the letters in the word Lord are capitalized. It's in all caps, Lord. If you do a study of Zechariah chapter 12, you'll understand that every time you see the all caps LORD in the Bible, it is specifically referring to Jesus Christ. Go back, take a look at Zechariah chapter 12, and study it out for yourself and see how the all caps LORD is referring to Jesus Christ, and Moses says that that all caps LORD is the rock. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 31. It says, For their rock, referring to the other nations, the heathen lands, worshiping their gods, and Moses says, For their rock is not as our, capital R, rock. Even our enemies themselves being judges. Peter, in his epistle, even clears up this idea of who is the rock. In verse Peter chapter 2, and verse number 8, he says, And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. 
even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And a rock of offense. He says somebody is a rock of offense in this passage. If you'll find in verse number five, you'll find that when you get to the end of the verse, it tells us who the subject of this passage is, and it's Jesus Christ. Peter says, hey, he is the rock. He's that rock of offense, that rock that the church is built upon that, hey, a lot of people are offended by. Peter clears it up in his own epistle. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 9, verse 33. He says, as it is written, behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Jesus Christ is the rock. The church was founded upon and started by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I'll be frank, I am not interested in a church that was started by Peter. You say, why? Because Peter failed. Peter was flesh and blood. Peter sinned. Peter was like you and me. I'm interested in a church that was built upon the person who cannot sin, who cannot lie, who cannot fail. And the only person that has those capabilities is Jesus Christ. It is important that He is the foundation of the church because if the church is built upon Him, then exactly right, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it because nothing can prevail against Jesus Christ. Let me give you a thought to mull over regarding the foundation of the church. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, we have that great story of the two men who built houses. The Bible says that the wise man built his house upon the rock, and when the storms came and the wind blew and beat upon the house, the house on the rock stood what? Stood firm. It stood firm. Then you have on, you flip the coin over, you got the foolish man. He built his house on what? He built his house on the sand. On the sand. And when the winds came and blew upon the house, and the storms came and the floods came up, the house on the sand, as the children's song goes, it went splat. It went splat. Now, let me bring this together. In verse 24, Jesus starts off this story with, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. Jesus is saying, if you want to be a wise man, build your house upon my sayings. The rock in the story is Jesus Christ. Because when the storms come, the, rock, the house that is built on Christ will stand firm. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, you know what's referred to as the house of God? That's right. The church is referred to the house of God of God. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 6 says that we, the church, are the house of God. Therefore, when the storms come and the winds blow, we better be built and fastened upon a wise rock, and that rock is Jesus Christ, if we want our house, the house of God, the church, to stand strong. Now, I say this next part almost tongue-in-cheek, but seven chapters later, we have a storm and winds again, Matthew chapter 14. And we have two men once again, but this time they have the two men that are involved in the, what some might say, controversy regarding Matthew chapter 16. And you'll find in the story that one man, when the storms came and the winds blew, that he still stood. 
He did just fine. But you'll find the other man, the Bible says when he saw the winds, he began to sink. Just frankly, he went splat into the water. Who were those two people? What well, was Jesus and Peter? Jesus was walking on the water in the midst of the storm. Peter came along and got out of the boat and asked to walk with Christ. And when he saw the winds, he sank. Let me ask you a question. Do you want a sinking church? I don't. You put, it, you put a house on the wrong foundation, it will sink. Therefore, it's very important that we make sure our house and our church is built upon Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important that you understand that because there's a lot of people out there who claim to be part of a church that was founded upon Peter. They can have it. I'm not interested in it because the church is founded upon Jesus Christ, not any mere man. Now, Peter is very important to the gospel. Peter was a very important man, but he was still flesh and blood. He was still a sinner. And really, for a house, he's just sand. It would be wiser to build your house on the rock. And as Paul and Peter and Moses say, that rock is Christ. So that answers the question of who started the church and who was the church founded upon. It was founded upon Jesus Christ. Now, I want to jump to another question real quick. When did the church start? That's a logical conclusion. When we come into this question of Baptist history, and as I said in our first episode, we are tracing our history from the time of Christ to present day. So it's important we know who started the church and when did the church start. Once again, we have two schools of opinion on when the church was started. When the church was started. The first one was that the church was started by Christ in the time of Christ. The second school of opinion is that the church was started on the day of Pentecost. They saw revival, they saw souls get saved, and boom, the church was started on the day of Pentecost when Peter was up preaching. All right, so let's discuss this in depth. As we go through and we look at a subject, it's important that we establish the facts that we know about something before we jump to any conclusions. So we're discussing the church. What is a church? Well, the Greek word for church is ecclesia, and it means a called-out assembly, a called-out assembly. Now, this assembly isn't just any assembly. This assembly is composed of baptized, born-again believers, not in that order. They first need to be saved and then baptized. Baptized believers, they must have a saving knowledge of Christ before they are baptized. And that's who this assembly is. They are called out from the world to meet together and to have a purpose of God rather than a purpose of the world. So we know that, number one, a church is a called out assembly. Number two, to be a church, they have to have the office of a pastor. There has to be a pastor. You'll find in um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, Mention, um, it mentions that there needs to be a pastor. There must be a pastor to fill that office. There must be that person to lead the church in the absence of Christ. Now, Christ is the head of the church. He is what the Bible refers to as the shepherd, but they are under shepherds. The pastors are under shepherds who lead until the return of Christ, but they are directly under the authority of Jesus Christ. It's important. A church must have a pastor. A church must have a pastor. And then there's some things that a church does. They do two things that were given to them by Christ. Number one, they baptize. And number two, they take part in the Lord's Supper. These are the two ordinances that were given to the church. Baptism 
and the Lord's Supper. So a church is a called-out assembly comprised of baptized believers. The church has to have a pastor, and the church will practice the two ordinances in the Bible. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we'll discuss those a little bit more in depth at a later time. So as we come to this and we look at those facts we have about the church, there's an easy way to solve this, what some might say is a mystery. There's an easy way to solve it. We just simply see if there is a group that meets that definition of a church before the day of Pentecost. And I think you'll find it. In fact, I know you'll find it. In John chapter 10, verses 11 and verse 14, Jesus Christ is referred to as a shepherd or referred to as a pastor in the analogy. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, chapter 8 and verse 22, Luke chapter 5 and verse 27, we have a called out assembly. Jesus goes and he calls the apostles. He calls them out from the world to give them a heavenly purpose, a called out assembly. And you will find that small church practicing the two ordinances as given by Christ. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, you'll find the disciples baptizing others. And then in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, Luke chapter 12, verse 32, you find them practicing the Lord's Supper. And we see all of that before the day of Pentecost. So let me ask you, when did the church start? Well, we have a church before Pentecost, so therefore the church must have started in the time of Christ by Christ. He established the church himself, and he personally appointed himself as the pastor. Now, if you're of the school of opinion that the church started on Pentecost, or maybe you've never heard it, or maybe there's somebody you know and, and they've been talking about it, and maybe you happen to see the title of this thing and you thought, well, let me tune in and see what he has to say about that. Maybe he'll discuss this, and you'll probably see it in the description. And maybe you want to have a few thoughts to mull over on the subject. Let me give you some. I'm going to give you four real quick. The pastor is often referred to as the under-shepherd, and the congregation is often referred to as what? As sheep. In fact, Jesus even referred to them as sheep. He told Peter, he said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Why then was this pre-Pentecostal, before the Pentecost, this pre-Pentecostal congregation, why were they referred to as a flock? in Matthew 26, verse 31, and Luke 12, verse 32. Question number two, why did Jesus teach them how to make use of church discipline as a current thing in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, if the church wasn't organized to go ahead and practice that yet? Question number three, why did this early group reflect church government by having a treasurer and conducting a business meeting, Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. And then the fourth question I want to leave with you was, how were all the converts of Pentecost added to the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, if they were supposed to be the start of the church? How's that possible? Well, it's not. The church was started by Jesus Christ in the time of Christ. So it's very important we understand that. Now, there, some might fire back and say, well, wait a second, the Holy Spirit wasn't given until the day of Pentecost. And, um, you know, so that means that if there's no Holy Spirit given, that there's no church. Well, that would be just a false conclusion to begin with. You'll find that when Jesus returned from the dead and he met in the upper room with the disciples, the Bible says that Jesus breathed on them and said what? Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So when did they get the Holy Spirit? 
Well, I would beg to differ that was up in the upper room when Jesus breathed on them and told them as a commandment, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Ghost. Some might say, well, wait a second. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 says that Christ said, I will build my church. And so that means a future event. Let me put it to you this way. In your marriage vows, if you're married, and I am, we said um, more traditional marriage vows where we said, I do. All right? A question is asked, you say, I do. You know, though, sometimes people refer to, and this happened a lot more in older times, a question be asked, will you take this woman to be your wife? And you would say, I will. I will. So if we were to use the logic that some people use when they're talking about Matthew 16, 18, and they say, well, Jesus said, I will build my church. That means someday in the future. That means this guy and this lady holding hands together right before the preacher. The lady's in the white dress. They're about to get married. And he says, will you take this woman to be your wife, to love her? And blah, blah, blah. You know the rest of it. And he looks at, the, looks at his, his future bride and he says, I will. There will be some day in the future that I will. I will one day. Not right now, but one day. No, no, no. He's saying, I will, starting right now. I will, I have loved you, and I will continue to do so. Very important that you check the logic on some arguments. So, in review, Christ built the church upon himself. He started the church in his time. Now, the apostles were instrumental in continuing to take the gospel and spread it throughout the world. And they planted churches across the way. If you were to ask me who is the greatest church planter of all time, I think the easy answer would be the Apostle Paul is the greatest church planter of all time. And as they planted churches, what were these churches called? Were they Presbyterian churches? Were they Methodist churches? Were they Catholic churches? Were they Baptist churches? Well, by name, you won't find any of those in Scripture, in fact. In fact, you find only one word that's given to these churches, and that's in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. It says, And when he had found him, he brought him into Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves within, with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. You find the only name assigned to these churches other than church is Christian. They were simply Christian churches. Christian churches. And you say, well, wait a second. Wait a second, Josh. You said that we were going to trace Baptist churches from the time of Christ all the way to present day. And I did say that. And we will. Because there's something very important you need to understand about denominational titles. That title Baptist, that title Presbyterian, that title Methodist, that title Catholic, that title isn't just a title. There's a little more behind it. And it's fundamental to understanding the history of the church. But unfortunately, you're going to have to tune in next time. Next week, we're out of time for today. So come back next week. We'll talk about what is so important about the denominational titles or what's not so important about them. You'll find that out next week in our podcast, the second episode referring to Baptist history. So excited to share that time with you. And I hope you had a great time today. I hope it opened your eyes to some things. If this is something you've enjoyed, let me encourage you on whatever platform you're listening on to go ahead and hit that subscribe button or that follow button, and you'll get alerts when new episodes are published. And you'll see when that next one for Baptist history is published. 
Until next time, keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.